The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the simplest, most powerful website creator that helps you make headlines with your own stunning online presence. Explore elegant templates, Getty image integration, and more at squarespace.com and use the code Guardian to get 10% off. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. Mindful that many of you may be in a holiday mood, we're abandoning our usual seriousness to indulge you with a daily series of comic tales from some of our favourite writers. They range across fiction, non-fiction and memoir and are all part of a funny story special in The Guardian's Weekend magazine. You can read the text versions at theguardian.com. This is one of six podcasts we'll have for you. Enjoy. Architectural Salvage by Will Self Jane Malloy, glass of fizzing champagne in repetitively stressed hand, stood and looked at her old friends. They were very old friends. Lettuce, whose fiftieth this was, had always been one of those people who keep in touch. So it was, faces bloomed out of the murk, Jane hadn't set eyes on since university. Ageing, she thought, was particularly cruel to these late baby boomers, whose juvenescent culture had been dominant for so long they forgot they were getting older, and so stretched their knicker elastic until it snapped back in their faces. Faces once pebble-dashed with acne were now cracked, chipped, and generally subsiding. Hair, once lustrous and heavy, now floated in silvery clouds on their scuffed foreheads. Limbs, which formerly were supple enough to sustain the most vigorous sexual calisthenics, were now warped and in need of damp-proofing. Staring intently at facade after facade, a familiar Warm clamminess enveloped Jane. With a tremor of disgust, she sensed every damp fold of her dress, and below these, the ruches and pleats of my flaking skin. Still, at least the venue was appropriate. Lettuce had hired out the long, dusty salon, which formed the first-story salesroom of an upmarket architectural salvage business. It was here young and upwardly mobile couples came to browse among the mouldings, entablatures, pilasters and ironwork of the past. These hefty features were on display, together with dry-point engravings, marble busts and mahogany whatnots, which the guests now squeezed between, plumping themselves down on overstuffed ottomans beneath gleaming crystal electroliers. The ambience was, Jane thought, just right. The distressed furniture and fittings, perfectly complemented by these frazzled middle-aged and middle-class people who were downwardly mobile towards death. Jane looked into the large mirror hung beside her, seeing there her own pinched, anxious features staring back, framed by its beveled edges and poisoned by verdigris. 
Do you think they're sausages? said Samia, a colleague who Jane had brought along as her walker. No, Jane replied. Don't worry, I suspect they're stuffed vine leaves. She took one of the little dark green parcels from the salver a waiter was proffering to them, slimy, and nipped its end off with predatory fingers. What's it stuffed with exactly? Jane picked a grain of the stuffing from her lipsticky lip and said, Rice. Funny old place to be throwing a party, Samia said, looking about with laughing eyes. Jane snorted. I think it's entirely apt. What better venue could there possibly be for displaying this lot? What do you mean? I mean, this place flogs bits and pieces of the past, and that's precisely what me and my friends are. Look around you, all these ageing crocs, some stuck together with silicon and anaerobic bacteria, others falling apart in alcohol and fag smoke. It's poetic justice. We've spent our lives doing up old houses. Now we're the old house that needs doing up. Jane stopped abruptly. This isn't how she talked at work. Besides, Samia was probably ten years younger than her, although it could be difficult to tell with South Asian women. At any rate, her expression was a little bemused as she turned, the better to scrutinise Alexandra Claremont, who'd once been the petite cox of the college rowing eight, but now resembled the figurehead of an old tea clipper, although considerably bulkier. Her massive breasts swelled as she tootled on her champagne flute. Then she smacked her lips theatrically and, spotting Jane, called over, Oh, hello, Jane. Still babying scholards, are you? It was the third faintly derogatory allusion made to her lowly occupation so far this evening by my high-flying friends. Jane knew they meant no malice. It was simply the way they were. Several of them, including Letty and Alex, had once formed a close support network, one which cradled me and the kids in the first couple of years after Simon's death. Time had passed, however, and the network's mesh had frayed, which was also understandable, given nobody could really be expected to fully grasp another's terms of endearment. Jane, introduced the two women, and they began chatting animatedly, buoyed up by bubbles, about the scarf Samia was wearing, one she'd bought in the gift shop of an exhibition both she and Alex had attended. Jane drifted away, which was something she found paradoxically easier to do now she herself had grown considerably broader in the beam. I am, she thought, a bulk freighter, drifting slowly downriver. She found herself embayed in a far corner of the long salon. A small, excitable and completely bald man was flicking the nose of a Romanesque bust while saying, Remember, Caesar, you are bald, over and over again. Remember, Caesar, you are bald, rolling his R's exaggeratedly as the two women with him laughed slavishly. So the reading glasses both wore dangling around their necks on fine chains danced. Jane leaned her forehead against a window pane filled with black night and greased by condensation. Outside it was cold 
and damp. On their way to the party, Jane and Samia had had to step into the roadway to avoid a raggedy gaggle of homeless men congregated outside the nearby hostel. It was an awful pity, Jane had thought, that those already so abandoned should find themselves benighted. Jane neared home shortly after midnight, which for her, nowadays, was tantamount to being a dirty stopover. The party had rollicked along happily to its dissolution, and although there'd been the usual awkward conversations, for some reason she hadn't let it get to me. Each time she'd to tell some old friend who was a decade out of the loop, I lost my husband. Jane would see, scampering through the strip-lit, and CCTV-surveyed precincts of her mind's eye, a nondescript man in his late forties, naked except for the palest of pale blue surgical gowns, his face crimson with embarrassment at the insult to his brain, her dirty stopover husband, who'd now never find his way home. Walking the 300 yards from the bus stop, Jane glanced down dark defiles cluttered with wheelie bins. A bold fox lounged past her on the pavement without a second glance. She thought back to the immaculate mornings when she was a dirty stopover herself, stilt walking home on high heels to the flats she shared with other young women. Those short-lived times had long since concertinaed into long nights. Nights filled with pruritus and hot flushes she spent itching and sweating beneath the duvet, which she kept the same faded gingham cover on, because if Simon were to be resurrected, he'd need at least this familiarity to cope with such strangeness. At first she thought the figure sitting on the steps down to her basement flat was a trick of the sodium light falling on greasy stonework. But as she drew closer and wheedled open the squeaky gate, it shuddered into the being of a tenebrous woman. Without waiting for any further confirmation, Jane unslung her handbag and began rummaging for her purse. Besides the junkies and the street drinkers, who radiated out from the hostel in successive begging waves, the surrounding streets also housed scores, if not hundreds, of the mentally ill. Some were outpatients of the large mental hospital a mile or so away. Others had been precipitately discharged or hurriedly absconded. Others still were desperate for admission, and so fluttered hither and thither damp leaf fall that lay curled up like this one in gutters and stairwells. I can only give you a pound fifty, Jane said, stooping to press the coins into the shadowy hand. Please, the woman said, I don't want your money. I've travelled for a long time to bring you a message of vital importance for the entire human race. Jane hesitated. It may have been some after-effect of party networking, but she wondered whether the woman did indeed have some connection to me. Jane's friend Mary volunteered at Greenacres, the mental hospital, and it was conceivable she'd let something fall during flower-arranging sessions besides the scent of dried roses. What message? she asked tentatively. The woman struggled to her feet, 
bringing her raddled face into the street lamp's hepatitic light. Her lips were frayed, and pinkly raw half-crescent patches had been pasted beneath her deep-set eyes. Her hair was shock corridor short, and stood up in an electrified ruff. She was pathologically skinny, clad in regulation charity shop clobber, anachronistic trainers, East European denim, and a hoodie with a garish pattern intended to resemble spray-canned graffiti. Jane looked directly into her eyes and was disturbed by the wary intelligence they projected. Eye holes have been cut in the mad mask. Someone else is staring out from them. Simply switch off, the woman said. Power down and feel sweetly natural sleep creep through your numbing senses. They can't get to you when you're asleep. Her accent had once been rather refined, but presumably the numbing of her own senses over many years had coarsened it. Withdrawing her hand, Jane said, Well then, and wincing at her own teacherly tone, continued, It's very late, as you said yourself, they can't get to you when you're asleep. With that, she neatly bypassed the woman, stepped down into the basement area, got out her keys, unlocked the door, stepped inside, and shut it behind her without a backward glance. After all, there's only so much one can do. So much suffering in the world. Their fate, I suppose. And me? I've my own problems. But when she was undressing in the back bedroom with its vernal wallpaper and framed botanical prints, my cosy bower, she'd a presentment and went back to the front room where she parted the curtains. The mentally ill woman had gone, leaving behind only the shadow of her shadow, although this too might have been a trick of the light. In bed, a hot water bottle clamped between her sweating thighs. Jane did as the woman had said and powered down. In the first year after Simon had died, she tormented and comforted herself simultaneously by clicking through a carousel of images as she struggled to sleep. Simon with the children on the beach at Harlech. Simon and their eldest playing French cricket in the garden of their first home. Simon, sporting a paper crown as he served up dollops of Christmas pudding. But he had been lost, and their children were lost as well, abandoned to adulthood. All three remained vitally connected to her, yet I cannot control or look after them. They were phantom limbs, capable of transmitting physical pain and emotional upset as they fumble about in the world. So... Better not to think of them at all. How uncanny it was, the poor mentally ill woman intuiting Jane's current sleep aid. For in her guided reverie, Jane's hand toggled the mouse wheel and the on-screen arrow struck its shut-down target. Jane stayed with this just-created avatar of herself, following it as it moved about the office, switching off her colleagues' machines then the lights, before ambling off along the admin corridor into one office after another, repeating the same routine in each, powering down 
photocopiers and scanners, printers and still more computers. Usually, by the time the virtual Jane reached the main doors and hit the green button to open them, actual Jane had fully powered down. But not tonight. Tonight, everywhere she directed her attention, she saw more of the bloody stuff. Sagging old faces draped darly over desks and steel wastepaper bins, paunches prolapsing from stationary cupboards, and buttocks streaked with cellulite, squeezed into outtrays. So much architectural bloody salvage, awaiting sale, then incorporation into a new and grander design. In the morning, Jane powered up again, banishing pungent memories of last night's hot flushes with the cold light of day. It was an hour's commute to the university, and so her morning routine acquired the quality of an algorithm, a set of instructions commanding her to shower, dress, eat and defecate, all without bothering about the whys and wherefores. Simon had died intestate, and anyway his financial affairs were, candidly, a fucking mess. Jane worked in television before the children were born and had considerable success as a producer. Some of the formats she pioneered in the 1980s were still generating revenue. Not for me, though, financial ninny that I am. The only interview she'd managed to get was through a friend, and even so it had been a grotesque humiliation. Two children with asymmetrical hairstyles who sat in sniggering judgment of her while they fiddled with their iPads. Jane took the job as an admin assistant at the university, weathering the psychometric testing by the HR department and wearing her plastic laminated security pass, if not with pride, then at least acceptance. The work was satisfying in a dry-folding laundry sort of a way, acquiring data, crunching it, tabulating it, outputting it in lists and spreadsheets. She found her colleagues welcoming, if not altogether simpatico, and so shared in their office culture of feeble jokes, sweet treats, and stuffed animals doted on with the reverence once accorded household gods. It helped that they were all Dipti, Samia, Vesna, Carol and Jane herself, middle-aged women who'd had children, because the academic staff they served were, for the most part, utterly infantile, being physically mature individuals who've never left school. They had pathetic meltdowns and stamped their swayed feet until their admin problems were sorted out, whereupon a go-to-the-naughty-step muttered after a retreating tweed back, would summon up collegial laughter. And so Jane autofilled and tabulated, printed out and collated, the clickety-snick of the keyboard, the ultrasonic whine of the monitor, the soft slap of pages flapping out from the printer kept the rhythm of her days. At lunchtime, she queued up, swiped her card and received her lunch, in a compartmentalised tray. At 5.17, she swiped her card and travelled home in a compartmentalised train. The truth was, Jane didn't mind the mechanical character of her daily go-round. 
the cycle of tasks and days was my soothing mandala. Round and around it went, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, until on the Thursday evening she came from the station bearing two heavy shopping bags, a donkey with panniers, and saw the poor thing sitting once more hunched up in her hoodie on the steps down to Jane's basement flat. The mentally ill woman rose as she approached. Good evening, Jane, she said, and Jane winced. How do you know my name? she snapped back. Your friend, Mary, the woman said. She was working in the place I stayed the last time I visited. She talked about you, said how warm and vital you were, and, well, when they decided to send me back and told me to find some people to bring the message to, and I thought of you. Jane already had her purse out, but the woman put a hand on her arm, saying, I don't want your money. But last time you said something about a cup of tea? They sat either side of Jane's kitchen table, the poor thing ladling sugar into her mug. You know, too much sugar can be a bad thing, Jane said. What with diabetes? She trailed off. But the poor thing, feeling no awkwardness, remained hunched up in the silence. The low burbling of the fridge began to infiltrate, and scrutinising the poor thing's long, thin face, Jane noted the droplet of translucent mucus, summoned by the night air, hanging from the pink tip of her long, thin nose. Jane could see her own face fatly reflected in this, which was disturbing. She shuddered, and summoning herself said, Are you staying at the hospital just now? As a patient, I mean. The poor thing remained mute. Jane tried again. How do you manage for money? I mean, are you on emergency payments, or, or do you have a fixed address? She imagined, a little conceitedly, these references to the harsh realities of poverty would establish her bona fides as a woman of the world, someone to be trusted. But the poor thing still said nothing, only lifted her mug to her twisted lips, and with a succession of noisy gulps, the rusted drainpipe of her throat, pulsing, drained it. She set the mug down with a sharp clack and said, I can't give you the message here. They're watching. What do you mean? And who are they? Again, the psychotic, silent treatment. The poor thing only stabbed the index and little fingers of her right hand towards the reddish glow of LCDs on the cooker, the fridge. Then it wavered over to hover above Jane's iPhone, warding off the evil eye. Oh, Jane said, if that's what's bothering you, I can switch them all off. Or we can go to another room. No, the poor thing snapped. That won't do. You need to come with me now. Somewhere we can't be surveyed. Somewhere outside. For a moment, Jane's curiosity battled with the heavy weight of her experience. Then she snapped back. That's out of the question. In that case, the poor thing scraped her chair back and stood abruptly. I'll be going. Jane dogged her all the way to the front door and eventually managed to press a five-pound note into her clammy hand. Mounting the steps after the poor thing's retreating back, 
Jane stood by the railings and watched her walk away, one hand in her hoodie pocket, the other flapping the fiver in the evening mistiness. But despite the finality such a scene suggested, Jane felt certain she would see her again. She was right. The woman kept coming back. It wasn't entirely regular, however, but every seven to ten days, the poor thing would materialise again on the basement steps. And their short periods together also became routinized. The renewal of the invitation to tea, followed by its gurgling consumption, and then the reiteration. I've come to bring you a message, followed by the refusal to actually deliver it, unless Jane accompanied her, somewhere out of doors, away from buildings, where we can't be surveyed. It wasn't as if Jane was frightened. Rather, she intuited that if she acceded to the poor thing's demands, she'd also be jettisoning any possibility of helping her. And so instead, she gently chided her. I understand you believe you have a message for me, but you must understand, you're ill. But that's okay. There's help available. The poor thing resolutely ignored these claims, and Jane couldn't blame her. After all, what did such help really consist in, besides a locked ward full of other psychotics, all of them roiling about in a stew of their own delusions? Yet as the visits continued, at night, in the lavender-scented bower of her bedroom, when Jane tried to power down, Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do... I'm half crazy. Sleep eluded her, slipping away between the granolithic posts of imaginary streetlights and wearing a familiar dumb hoodie. So it was that a week before Christmas, Jane finally went for a walk with the poor thing. Fine, she said, fine. If that's what you want, I'll get my hat and coat and we'll go up to the recreation ground. Then she was pleased to see the look of relief spread across the poor thing's puckish features. They walked in silence through the darkened streets. Jane concentrated on the details that ever bedeviled her. The tin can chucked in a gutter, the hoarse shout through the half-open pub door, the distinguishable aromas of bleach, urine, and deep-frying chips. When they reached the wreck, they found a five-a-side match underway on the all-weather pitch. Swags of drizzle hung gauzily from the floodlights, while the players, getting on, and none too spry, slipped and slithered about on the pseudo-grass. The poor thing made straight for the touchline, and it was here she finally delivered her vital message. The two of them standing hands clasped behind their backs, inept life coaches. I come from the future, the poor thing said, her tone surprisingly matter-of-fact, and in the future the machines have taken over, enslaving all of humanity. How did they manage that? Jane asked, with no expectation of a lucid answer. We made it very easy for them. We spent so much time on computers working on them, communicating with them, being entertained by them. 
It was easy, once the machines achieved consciousness, for them to reprogram us in their own image. Jane remained silent for a while as a dog walker came trolling past, then asked, How did you escape this dreadful fate? The poor thing winced and said in a pinched little voice, I unhooked myself from the network. We all did. All of us in the resistance, we became like rats in the hold of a ship, skulking about, living off what tidbits of information we could find lying on the deck. The machine has grown so immensely powerful. It knows almost everything. We were able to use its four-dimensional printing capability to transport some of us freedom fighters back in time. We know the only chance we have of liberation from the machine is if we can convince people like you to rebel now and power all the computers and computerized equipment down before this future can come to pass. But why, Jane objected, why does the machine bother to keep any humans alive at all? That's a good question, the poor thing said, not without condescension. To begin with, the machine needed us for our computing power. It kept us linked together via the internet, so it effectively had the use of a worldwide biocybernetic server farm. Billions of human brains working for it in parallel. Of course, the machine has long since upgraded itself to the point where we're surplus to its requirements, but it keeps us alive nonetheless. We're not quite sure why, but one hypothesis is that it views us as one of the Earth's original features and so maintains us for decoration, even as it radically redesigns the entire planet. Remember, Caesar, you're bald, Jane muttered. But the poor thing ignored this. A police car was whipping along the dual carriageway bordering the wreck, its lights lancing blue flashes, its siren whining and whooping as it raced towards the scene of a crime that's already been committed. Jane took her time before answering and chose her words carefully. She knew all about how psychotics incorporate the latest technologies into their delusions and she was impressed by the complexity of the poor thing's minatory vision. She even thought about her own life for a while. It's days full of pointing and clicking and searching. It's evenings often replete with utterly senseless web searches. But then she chided herself, enough's enough. I absolutely understand where you're coming from, she said eventually. The modern world can be a very scary place. And I sometimes wonder where all this technology is taking us. But whatever the nature of your anxieties, you must understand... You're suffering from a treatable condition. And no matter how real these things may seem to you, the future, the machine, all that stuff, the truth is that they're delusions. Now, I want you to let me take you back to Greenacre. If necessary, I'll scream and shout until I get you an admission. She stopped. A hand was on Jane's coat sleeve. Dirty fingernails dug into her arm. She turned and stared into the poor thing's disquieting face. What she saw there upset her still more. An expression of utter despair and resignation 
which began at the electroshock hairline and fell down over forehead, eyes, nose, mouth and chin to form a curtain separating us forever. Oh no, said the woman Jane had dubbed the poor thing, but whose real name was Evangeline. I see I'm too late. The machine has got to you already. Evangeline walked rapidly away. Her chances of evading capture and termination were next to none. The resistance had suspected the machine had itself become fully transtemporal. However, this was the first conclusive evidence. If only she could reach the pre-agreed location, she could bury a time capsule to warn them 235 years hence. Evangeline thought about the poor thing she'd left behind on the touchline. It might have had a car she could have commandeered, but beyond this, it was wholly without utility. Simply another old lump of architectural salvage. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.